Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. We've, we've had two studies in chapter 1 as we looked at the wrath of God. We looked at, remember, we looked at the wrath of abandonment. We're uh, talking about a society that has become so overtly sinful and corrupt that God, that they actually, their giving up on God causes him to give up on them and look around. I believe that our nation is in that place. And then we looked at, uh, spent a couple of studies on that. And in chapter two, uh, we began to look at the last time that we were in Romans, which was four weeks ago. Uh, the first 11 verses, we, we looked at the moralistic man. Uh, and, and we looked at God's judgment and the fact that his judgment is upon sinful man. Looked at the fact that his judgment is towards sinful man, even though they may not be acting in the corrupt, overtly corrupt manner that we looked at in chapter one, but that it's not morality that qualifies one for salvation. Uh, the moralist, moralistic person agrees, actually, what we looked at, he agrees with Paul's condemnation of the they. Remember in chapter one, he says they, 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 they. And then he says in chapter two, he says you. <laughs> and, and so he, he agrees, the moralist agrees with the they being condemned in chapter one because he sees himself as better and therefore uncondemned. We talked about that. We talked about the false sense of security that that can bring. Uh, thinking in terms of God grades on the curve, I'm not as bad as them. And that's a tough position to take. That's why in chapter 2 that Paul begins with discussing how you, in judging them, prove that you, the moralist, have understanding of a standard. In other words, if you're going to judge other people, then what you're saying is that there's a standard by which I am judging you. And what he says, and essentially as we look at that standard, there's, a, there's an inbuilt standard that we have because we're created, created in the image of God. And the moral image of God is the image that he created us in. We don't get all of the omnis. You know, we're not going to shoot lightning bolts off of our fingertips or anything like that. But we do understand that God has a sense of morality. He's perfectly moral. The point in that is by using that standard in the same way that Jesus said, be careful the standard you use on others because that same standard will be used and measured back to you is that same standard condemns us. This is non-righteous. The Bible says this is non-righteous. No, not one. Therefore, we stand equally condemned as they that we ourselves condemn. Uh, it's, this is the problem. This is the conundrum of the moralistic man. And it is, a conundrum means that it's something, it's something that leaves you scratching your head. It's a how do you get there from here kind of a thing. But in God's economy, the wages of sin is death. What's a wage? It's something you earn. Who has earned that? All of us, if you look at the basis of God's judgment, thoughts, words, and deeds, <laughs> since you got out of bed this morning, let alone for a lifetime, who qualifies? Nobody. So we closed last time with looking at the fact, when we looked at the judgment of God, we looked at the fact that there are two births, talking about in the Bible, that there, we see two births, we see two deaths, and we see two judgments. So if you're born once, you die twice. We looked at the second death. 
But if you're born twice, if you're born again of the Spirit, there's one death. If you are born once and die twice, there is a judgment called the great white throne of judgment. And that is for every unbelieving soul. Doesn't matter how good you are. Doesn't matter how much you gave at the office or you helped little old ladies across the street, all of that. If you don't have Christ, if you have not identified your life with Christ and the work that he did on the cross, you're part of that group. And the second death uh, that's talked about in, in the book of Revelation is the result. However, looking at judgment, we've seen that judgment is, salvation is by grace. We, we understand that if you've been a Christian for long. But judgment is based on works. It's based on what you do. And so for the believer, we see that there is the Bema judgment, and that's based on the fact that Christ, his righteousness is on my life. And so therefore, when God judges, it'll be for rewards. For the unbeliever, there's nothing left but wrath. Because if you've not come under the grace of God, then what you have done is that which condemns you. So that's the last time. It's been, like I said, it's been four weeks since we've been in, in Romans. So I wanted to give a bit of a, a background so that we can catch the flow of what we're going to be in this morning. We wrapped up last time with verse 11, where Paul tells us that there's no partiality with God. Remember, we looked at that. The word literally means to lift the face. Uh, it, it means that there's no bias. There's no prejudice with God. Uh, and it's a legal term. And what they would do is that if somebody was in a courtroom, that no partialities, the judge would not lift the face of the person who was the defendant uh, and then become biased. And so that, that was how that came about. Uh, what he's saying here is the heathen, for the heathen and the moralist alike, the heathen in chapter one, the moralist in chapter two, outside of Christ, all stand condemned. And he doesn't, as he's writing to the church in Rome, he doesn't want the Romans to get the idea that somehow the Jews were favored, that they were superior. God's special people, yes, continually, still are. And yet the gospel uh, is, it, it, there's no partiality between Jew and Gentile. That was his point. So now as we look at the text that we're going to be in this morning, from verses 12 through the end of the chapter, uh, we're going to look at three ways, three things that Paul exposes about the self-righteous person. Three boasts. Uh, because people were boasting in their own stuff. And he wanted to make sure that they had a clear understanding that that's not going to cut it with God. Uh, great application for us. We'll get to that at the end of the message as we look at it. But the first boast was that the people were boasting about their knowledge of or the lack of knowledge of the law of Moses, the law of God. Verse 12, it says, For as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. Uh, now, if you notice in your Bible, verses 13 through 15 are a parentheses. There's a parentheses around, they're bracketed. I'm going to read this again, but I'm going to go to straight. I'm going to leave the parentheses out, then we'll come back and we'll revisit it and we'll teach through it. But I'm going to read 12 and 16 connected together because they form the sentence that Paul is laying out here. He says, 
For as many have sin, as have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus, according to my gospel. You got to understand that as Paul is, as, as this letter is being written, remember we looked at, there's a guy by the name of Tertius, and he's the one that's actually writing it down. Paul's not, he probably isn't sitting at a desk and thinking these things through. I picture him pacing back and forth, you know, wearing a, a groove in the floor as he's dictating this letter. And so Tertius, is, he's essentially trying to keep up. So he puts this bracket in here, this, these parentheses, uh, and he continues the statement at the end of it. What he's saying is a man will be judged by what he had the opportunity to know, whether it was by the law or not by the law. Uh, if he knew the law, he'd be judged as one who knew the law. That was what the Jews, uh, a reference to the Jew uh, there. And if he didn't know the law, he would be judged as though uh, one who did not know the law, the Gentile. So he's, again, he's laying out this whole equal thing here, no partiality. He's explaining why there's no partiality. This is the nuts and bolts of there not being partiality with God. He's saying that even those who didn't know the written law had an unwritten law in their hearts. We would call it the intuitive or the instinctive knowledge of right and wrong. All of us have it. Uh, I've mentioned to you guys before that when I was doing jail ministry, I, I would ask the guys, did you, did you not know it was wrong? The thing that landed you here. And I never had anybody say, I didn't know. We all do. I remember one time seeing the conviction of God come across somebody. Uh, we were having a conversation and I ended the conversation with, you know in your heart what's right. And the Holy Spirit took that and just convicted that person to the core because they did. We do. Very often when I see marriages get into trouble, it's because we know in our hearts what's right, but we're not going to go there. We get stuck in our pride. We know. The point here that Paul is saying is God is fair. Here's a big question. If people say, well, what happens to the people who they don't have any knowledge of Christ? They haven't had the opportunity to hear the gospel. And the answer to that, Paul lays out here, he says they'll be judged by their fidelity to the highest that was possible for them to know. What is that? Well, back in chapter 1, we looked at the revelation of God, how God has revealed himself to man. In chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, we read, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We looked at that. See a lot of suppression going on out there these days. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. They, he goes on to say, they are without excuse. So what he's saying is that there is an innate knowledge of God. Uh, the creation itself attests to the fact that there's God. And so God is not saying you have to have this magic formula down. Yes, our salvation comes by grace through faith in the finished work of Christ. That's, that's not up for grabs. And for the person who has never had the opportunity, well, what about the, you know, the pygmies in the African jungle or whatever it is? A lot of times when people are throwing questions like that out, they're looking for reasons to not believe. They're, they're not being genuine. But he answers that here. They'll be held to account for what they do know. You don't worry about it. I have a friend that many years ago, we were sitting in a restaurant and he said, you know, John, I don't worry about what I don't know about God. 
I worry about what I do know. And I just think that that's a great word for us. So now we're going to get into this parentheses here in verse 13. Uh, you'll notice again the bracket there. He says, for not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. What he's saying here is God's judgment is not withheld because someone has heard the law. He said, that doesn't count. It's only held back if someone actually does the law. I want to be careful here. <laughs> what this is not saying is that we're somehow justified by law. We are not justified by law. We are justified by faith. So, well, why does it say that? What it's saying is that the Jewish person, again, he's talking to the Jew here, or the religious person, we could apply that to ourselves, may think that he's saved because he has the law. But, but, has he kept it? No. Those shoes are too big to fill. For the Jew, there is zero room to boast. Well, I have the law. That's why if you notice the title slide, a pair of kids' legs in adult shoes. Those are shoes, what we're talking about here, folks, this morning is shoes that are too big for us to fill in our own righteousness. We can't boast. The Gentile. So he's talked about the Jew. The Gentile might think that he's saved because he doesn't have the law. Well, I, I'm, not, I'm not a Jewish person, so I don't have to worry about the law of God. But has he kept the dictates of his own conscience? Again, rhetorical question, no. Those shoes are equally too big for the Gentile to fill. There is no room for boasting. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 3 through 6, we read that the Apostle Paul here, hopping mad, by the way, Galatians is the angriest letter in the New Testament. Uh, and and the, the, the Judaizers were coming in and trying to rip people off, saying, well, yeah, you, you're saved by grace, but you've really got to keep the law of Moses. And Paul is saying, they do not. <laughs> he says, I testify to every man who becomes circumcised that he's a debtor to keep the whole law. You want to keep the law? You want to live by law? You want to see that you're justified by law? Then you have to keep every letter of the law. Those 613 laws that are put forth in the Old Testament, you have to keep perfectly for your whole life. That's why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you must be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. He's not saying that because perfection is what is needed. What he's saying is that perfection has to be imputed. It has to be given to us. His perfection is imputed to us through the work that he did on the cross. He says, you become estranged from Christ. Back in Galatians, you who attempt to be justified by law, you've fallen from grace. Those are strong words. You want to be justified in God's eyes by keeping a list of rules? Good luck with that. It won't cut it. He says, for we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. That's where it's at. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. We'll look at circumcision in a bit. What Paul's saying here is the same as in Romans. He's saying, you as a Jew cannot boast about keeping the law. You as a Gentile are not off the hook, and you can't boast about not having to keep the law. Neither one. What he is saying is there's, a, there's an overarching principle. There's a higher principle here. And it's all about faith working through love. And that's where we're at. Verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. So what he's saying is the Gentile by nature 
may do the things contained in the law because they're aware of right and wrong, but Paul is really careful here to not say that the Gentile could, could, could fulfill the requirements of the law because they can't. No one can. In verse 15, we read, who show the work of the law written in their hearts. Again, there's that, that innate knowledge of right and wrong. Their conscience also bearing witness and between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. This is saying that even a person's conscience cannot be trusted. Why? Because your conscience, my conscience is fallen. Uh, I'm going to talk for a minute about something that is going through our culture, our society right now, that is actually proof <laughs> of what we're talking about this morning. And it's a term, you may not have heard it, and we're looking at probably sometime in May, we're going to have someone come in that's going to do a special teaching uh, about what's going on in our culture and how that applies to the body of Christ. But there's a term called virtue signaling that's going on out there. I was watching our beloved president do a bunch of that this last week, and it was not genuine. And I'm not going to sit here and go down that road, but let me give you a definition of what virtue signaling is. It's the action or practice of publicly expressing opinions and sentiments intended to demonstrate one's good character or the moral correctness of one's position on a particular issue. Highly suspect when man makes himself the center of his own morality. It's boasting in one's own virtuous conduct, which is really, it just kind of negates the whole thing. Here's the fallacy. One may succeed in one point. What Paul says here, their conscience excusing them and fail on many other points, their conscience accusing them. I mean, this fits exactly where we're, what we're seeing in our society today. Those shoes are too big for any man or any woman to fill. There is zero room to boast in one's own morality, in one's own standard, because it's blowing off. It's the essence of blatant hypocrisy when you see that going on. And I'll guarantee you, you turn on the television or you look online and you look at the statements that are being made, especially in the political spectrum, there's a lot of virtue signaling going on out there that is patently false. Usually it's not because somebody is standing on their own virtue. It's because they have an agenda or they're carrying forth some narrative that is ungodly. And God's word calls it out. It's what we're looking at this morning. It's the result of throwing God out of our public discourse because we have, we're, now we're a generation, a generation and a half after having taken God out of our public discourse. What have we done with that void? As a society, I'm not talking about the church. I'm talking about society in general. We replaced the moral image of God in which we were created with man's own cheap version of conditional subjective morality. The very thing that Paul warns about here in Romans chapter 2, verse 16. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. We've looked at verse 16 already, but just tagging a couple of things there. When he says in the day, it's a reference to what he says in verse 5 here at chapter 2. He says, in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you're treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. God will judge the secrets of men 
by Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, we read, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. I'm glad the grace of God rests on my life. So that's the first of these three boasts. The, the second boast, he's gonna, he, now he's going to expose the, the second of these three boasts in the self-righteous person. The first one being, you can't boast in the fact that you've got the law. You can't boast in the fact that you don't have the law. The second one is boasting in one's own heritage. And we see it in verses 17 through 24 here, talking about the Jews. Verse 17, indeed, you who are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law. Essentially, what they were saying is, is, is we have the law. The Hebrews are boasting. Uh, we have the law, and we're the authority on the things that are excellent. Paul develops the right concept of boasting in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 31. He says, he who glories, it's the same Greek word, glory and boast. He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Let him boast in the Lord. If you're going to boast about anything, boast in the Lord. That's safe. He's the only one that's worthy of our boasting. It's not about ourselves. It's not, and he's laying it out for them. It's not in Judaism. It's not in any other ism or religious system. Having the Jews, having rejected Messiah, they were glorying, they were boasting in the wrong stuff. That's what he's pointing out here. The law had been a shadow which found its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And so, as when we looked at last week, the, the seven statements of Jesus from the cross, when Jesus said, it is finished, what he's saying, part of what, and we looked at it, is that the law of Moses had been fulfilled. It was done. The effect of the law was terminated at that cross for anyone who would come to believe. For those who don't, that law still condemns. Verse 19, he says, and you, you're confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. So what he's saying here is you're assuming that since you have this information and since you have this heritage, that you're somehow qualified to guide, illuminate, instruct, and teach others about God. He's exposing the fallacy of it. Because he's saying the law could never eliminate sins. The law, and the reason for this, is the law could never affect the heart. It never transformed. It has no, there's no power in the law to do that. Until Jesus, again, until he went to the cross, the law was simply a way for man to have his sins covered. They could never be taken out of the way. He's saying you're offering a form of knowledge and truth, but you fail to apply that truth to your own life. Verse 21, he says, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do you do not commit adultery? Do you commit adultery? He says, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Because they had pagan temples out and about. It, essentially what he's saying is the things which the Jew boasted over had never changed a life. Not theirs, not the people that they taught. There was no power in it. What there was, was a, a truckload of pride. Pride of race, we're the superior race. 
pride of religion, pride of knowledge. We have this special knowledge. But there was never any corresponding moral transformation. It was empty. In Matthew 23, some of the most powerful words that the Lord spoke were against the religious leaders of his day. In 23.13, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. So the Jew taught others, but didn't take the lessons to heart himself. That's the problem. That's the issue. His heart was unaffected. He preached against sin, but he practiced the very thing that he preached against. So in verse 23, the apostle Paul, he asks a a rhetorical question. He says, you who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? Of course, the answer that is implied is yes. The Jews had boasted in their possession of the law, but they dishonored the God who gave it by breaking its moral precepts, its sacred precepts. They couldn't keep it. Again, in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, you blind guides. You say, whoever swears by the temple, it's nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he's obliged to perform it. Jesus says, you're fools and you're blind. Which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, it's nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that's on it, he's obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? They consistently fell short. They put out a form, what Paul talks about, a form of godliness, but they denied its power. They had no way to actually keep the things that they were putting out for others. It was pride. It was blatant self-righteousness and pride that drove it. Verse 24, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. As it is written, he quotes Isaiah there and also in Jeremiah. There are a number of places. If you go through the Old Testament, you see that Israel consistently, their design by God initially was to be a light unto the nations. They were to be the the shining light that would advertise God's grace and his presence and his mercy and all of the things about him. But they never took that to heart. Their hearts were never transformed. They couldn't be until Christ. It was this combination of high talk and low walk that caused the Gentiles to blaspheme the name of God. The people judge the Lord, as men always do, by those who profess to be his followers. Think about it. It was true in the days of the prophets. It was true in Jesus's day. It's still true today. Be careful, folks. Allow your light to so shine before men that People glorify your Father who's in heaven. We have a choice every day when we get up. Am I going to walk by the Spirit or am I going to carry out the desires of the flesh? I want to cooperate with the work that God's doing in my heart. I want to live a life that counts. Do I always? No. I'm broken in ways. So are you. But what's the overriding desire of my heart? To go live for myself? What would it be like if I stood here and I told you guys, this is how you need to live. And then I went out and lived a life of debauchery. No, let your light shine. Allow God to work in you. Allow his grace to permeate your soul. Because again, we all have issues. 
All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But that's not the point that we're looking at this morning. Yes, that has to be part of it. That's part of the basis of our understanding. And yet we also want to understand that God calls us to live and he equips us to do it through the agency of the Holy Spirit. These people didn't have the Spirit of God. They didn't have what we have. We have, uh, among all people, are blessed. Now, Paul, at this point, he exposes the third boast of the self-righteous person here, and that's boasting in religious rites and rituals. We can fall into that. You've heard me exhort you several times when we come to the Lord's table and receive communion. Don't allow this to become a ritual. Don't hang your hat on it as, well, I'm doing that, so therefore I'm okay with God. No, that's a product of a relationship with God. It's never a means towards it. These people got it backwards over and over again. He says in verse 25, for circumcision is indeed profitable if, there's that word if, you keep the law. But if you're a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So in addition to the law, they, which the Jews prided themselves in, uh, they prided themselves in the rite of circumcision. Now, circumcision, was the, it's the mark of the covenant, of the old covenant law, and, and that's true. But it was an outward sign of something that was supposed to be happening on the inside. It represented a condition of the heart in the cutting away of the flesh. His point, Paul's point here, is to keep an outer form of circumcision and not keep the covenant it represented was to invalidate it altogether. He's saying you you put stock in circumcision, but you don't put stock in what it represents. Therefore, it's of no use to you. It's, It's a simple surgical procedure and that's it. Now, in verse 26, he inverts the whole argument and the concept here. In verse 26, he says, Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? What he's saying here, he's linking circumcision with the law of Moses, and he points out that it was only valid as a sign when it was combined with a life of obedience, with a life lived in the open. That's what he's saying here. His point in all of this, folks, is God is not, he's not a mere ritualist. God doesn't put stock in our rituals. He's saying it has to go deeper than that. He's not satisfied with external ceremonies unless they're accompanied by inward holiness. That's what he's pointing out to the Jew. That's something that we can take to heart as well. We'll look at that in a few minutes. So a circumcised Jew who transgresses the law might just as well be uncircumcised. That's the point he's making. It's of no effect. Verse 27, he says, and, and will not the physically uncircumcised, if he, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law. He's saying, look, if you're hanging your hat on the externals, the person who has never been circumcised, the person who has never had the law, but if they're living... For God, if they're living for Christ, they judge you. That it's not about, again, it's not about the externals. It's about what's happening in the heart. And folks, Christianity is all about the heart. It's another rhetorical question when he says, 
uh, won't they judge you? Because you have this written code and this outer cutting away of the flesh. But if they're living, right? And they're living in a manner that demonstrates and evidences the cutting away of the flesh in the hearts, they're living, they're in better shape than you are. He's saying that even though they have the law as well as the mark of the covenant, a person can have both of these things and be morally inferior to the one who doesn't have either because of the way they live. It's not about externals. That's something we can fall into, folks, really easily. We live in a world of performance-based acceptance from the time when we're little kids. If you make the toilet, you get an M&M. You know, it's all about you perform and you get a reward. You don't perform and you get penalized. You do a good job at work. You get to keep your job. You do a lousy job at work. Guess what? You're on unemployment. The point is, that's not how the kingdom runs. It's all about the grace of God. It's all about what, is, what has impacted your heart. It's never been about externals in God's kingdom. Verse 28, he says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. He's saying it's not about that procedure. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit not in the letter, not about the law, but in the spirit of the thing, whose praise, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. So in conclusion here, we see that it's not just a literal cutting of the body, but the spiritual reality of surgery on the soul. It is in the cutting away of the old unregenerate nature that God wants. And that shows up in a transformed life. It is these who receive, as Paul says here, God's praise. I want to have you understand something about verse 29 here. There's a play on words in the last verse of this chapter, and it's not apparent in English. The word Jew, it's rendered a little differently here in the original, and it comes from the word Judah. And the word Judah means praise. So what he's saying is a real Jew is one whose character is such as to receive praise from God. You want to live to receive God's praise, you live in a praiseworthy manner. That's the point he's making. So as we apply this to our own lives, I want to take these three things and I want to just kind of bring them home. As we look at our own lives, as we hold our lives up against what Paul is writing here in Romans chapter 2. The first is boasting in one's own knowledge of God. To be clear, we are under grace. We're not under law. As I mentioned, the effect of the law was terminated at the cross. And one can be an ardent churchgoer. I mean, you could be here every Sunday, be somewhere every Sunday. You could be knowledgeable about God and not be walking with God. I saw that a lot. It was demonstrated, <coughs> excuse me, it was demonstrated kind of out in the open when I was doing jail ministry. Uh, I, I would talk to guys. I mean, they could quote the Bible backwards and forwards. I mean, these guys, they had time. And, and I remember talking to one guy and, and I walked away kind of scratching my head. And I, and I remember thinking, you know, he knows what it says, but he has no idea what it means because it was the externals. He was hanging his pride on how much of the Bible he knew, but he didn't know Christ. 
So how can the question becomes then how can one know? And the answer is found in a personal relationship and the fruit of that relationship. Not with an organization, not with a religion or a denomination, not by how much Bible one knows as good as that is, but with Jesus, a personal relationship with Christ. That's what makes the difference. Because I'll tell you what, folks, the world is full of religious people. It's about knowing Christ. It's about trusting that when he went to that cross, he did it for you. It's about understanding that as a result of his resurrecting from the dead, the Holy Spirit can now come and indwell the heart of a believer and transform that person's life from the inside out. It's not about the externals. It's about Christ. Does he dwell in your heart this morning? If he doesn't, you can fix that real easily. You simply turn from the old life, even a religious life, and receive Christ. Ask him to forgive you for your sins, to cleanse you. Ask him to come into your heart, and he'll do it. You don't have to get your act together to come to him. He says, come as you are, but come. Trust that he did the work that he did on your behalf at the cross. The second thing that we looked at is boasting in one's heritage. Yeah, we're not Jewish. Well, at least not that I know of. My aunt is, but she was born Jewish. She's a Christian. Uh, hi, Aunt Sally. Um, she's probably watching online, so I had to say hi. But, you know, look at it, this. Look at it, heritage. I rooted around on the internet for quite a while <laughs> trying to find statistics on how many people are listed as being Christians in the United States. One number that kept popping up was 141 million. Really? I think not. If there were 141 million Christians, we would not be in the mess that we're in. We would not be seeing our culture just tip and falling off a cliff. We wouldn't be seeing the church in absolute decrease year after year. I don't believe that number. I don't believe some of the lower numbers. I certainly don't believe the higher numbers because they were all over the map, depending on which research company you were reading. So why make that claim? Because at least a large part of that number is driven by the fact that people identify with a Christian heritage, but not Christ. That's sad. Actually, it's pathetic. Seeing, looking out and seeing, yeah, there... And our company used to operate on the Judeo-Christian ethic, which was an aspect of the heritage. You could be not be walking with Christ, but still live by a particular moral code. That's part of what he's talking about here. I'm not saying it's right. I'm saying that that at least was evidenced in our culture. Not anymore. The church, the true church, it's not Calvary Chapel. I mean, yeah, I, I think we're part of the true church. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> or I'm wasting my time. I'm not. But the true church, the ecclesia, the called out ones, the set apart ones, has always been a remnant. The people of God have always been a remnant, a small minority of the whole. Be sure that you are part of that remnant. It's not about heritage. How many times do you talk and say, well, I'm a Catholic? Really? And essentially, it's the same thing he's talking about here. Look at your life. Look at the life you're leading. There is no evidence of that. Well, 
you know, I'm a Lutheran or I'm a, a Baptist or whatever it is. Where are you with Jesus? That's the question. The third thing we look at is boasting in religious rights. The third aspect of self-righteousness, because righteousness is required. But when it's self-righteousness, it doesn't even come close. For the Jews, it was circumcision. For the church, one of the things that people hang their hat on is baptism, water baptism. It's an outward sign of an inward act and transformation. That's what it is. It's, it's, it's the mark of the covenant. And yet, and, and let me just say that that's why infant baptism doesn't make sense. That's what, what, he, what Paul's talking about here. How can one be living out what the mark of the covenant represents when they're a baby? It, it doesn't, it flies against solid biblical teaching right here from Romans. The Bible tells us that we were baptized into his death, resurrected to newness of life. That's the symbol that baptism points, or baptism is the symbol that points to that reality, that points to the life that we have. If you're hanging your head on the fact that you got baptized, what does your life look like? Don't fall into one of these areas of self-righteousness that Paul is bringing out here. That's the point. I don't know where you're at with the Lord, and I'm not here to act as judge and arbiter, but he is. Be sure that you fall on the right side of these issues, gang. It's so important. We can slip into self-righteousness really easily. We can slip into thinking that, well, we've got our rituals or we've got our outward things together, but inside. Jesus talked about that again. When he got on the religious leaders, he said, you know, you clean the outside of the cup. But inside, you're full of dead men's bones. I don't ever want my life to be more like that. Uh, You know, and I've been through some dark times. And by the grace of God, he has lifted me out. I love the passage in Isaiah where he says, look to the the rock from which you were hewn and look to the pit from which you were dug. All of us. Praise God. So what are you boasting in as we wrap up? Allow the Spirit of God to put his hand on whatever that might be. All of us can slip into, like I said, we can slip into self-righteousness. We can slip into boasting in the wrong stuff. We're not immune. That's part of the instruction of God's word here, part of how it applies to us. I'm going to wrap up with a passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul talks about what he's boasting in. And I love this. When I read it, I thought, Lord, I want that to be mine. And you know what? It can be. He says in 2 Corinthians 1.12, he says, For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. Praise God. We do have something to boast in and someone to boast in. And it's him. You know, as we look at, we've looked at the judgment of God where, where, where that beam of judgment that believers will be experienced and exposed to, it says that we're going to receive a crown of righteousness. But in that, in that moment, in that instant, we're going to take that crown off and cast it at the feet of Jesus because it's his righteousness that's imputed to us is the only way that we can stand before God. Praise him that he's done all the work. We don't have to. We don't have to struggle and sweat, folks. Yeah, life's hard sometimes. Of course it is. But we are in, if you're in right relationship to Christ, you have a relationship with the king. 
And if you have a relationship with the king, he says this. He says, are you weary? Are you, are you, are you loaded down? Take my yoke upon you. My load is easy. My burden is light. Come to me and find rest. That's where it's at. Let's pray. Father, just, I absolutely love this passage in Romans. Lord, just, you're speaking to me through these things. I pray that you've been speaking to your people through it. There's just so much power and there's just so much wisdom here. Lord, uh, speak to us. Work in us. Deliver us from self-righteousness, any aspect of that. Fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit that we can go out from this place and live in a, in a manner that's consistent with the call that you put on each of our lives. Lord, we don't have the power to do that ourselves, but we yield to the power you're working, your power working in us today. Thank you, Lord, for these beautiful passages from your word. Thank you that by your Holy Spirit, you haven't, as Jesus said, you haven't left us as orphans, but that you're here, that you're present, that you're working in us, conforming us to the image of your son. We yield to that work in Jesus' name. Amen.